Welcome to Katusa First. We are a community of servants who love to serve our community. We do that through several means. We have uh, what I believe is the largest food and clothing ministry here in the area. And every Wednesday, we have volunteers that come to the church and help that way. We always have ways to volunteer. If you're looking to get plugged into the church, let me know, and we can find a place for you. Uh, if nobody greeted you as you walked in, then guess what? You can volunteer to be a greeter, right? We could always use people who are here on a Sunday morning to help those who are new find their way around. Um, I'm glad to be here this morning. I've been looking forward to Sunday all week. This is a time that I get to use the gift um, that I hope that God has given me, and throughout the week you get to use the gifts that God has given you. Um, we'll find out if it is a teaching is a gift of mine or not by how many of you are awake by the end of the sermon. So um, this is my litmus test for that. Uh, let me start off with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word today, God, I pray that every ear and every heart would be open to what you have to say. God, make us receptive, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and convict us where we need to be convicted. All God's people said. My dad, when uh, I was talking with him this last week, and uh, he's kind of hit that age where we have conversations that are very reflective, looking over his life. He's retired now, and it's interesting. I've been around a lot of adults who have, are recently retired, and they're all kind of going through this, well, what is my purpose now? What do I do now? I got all this free time. What am I supposed to do? And I'm looking forward to that stage of life where I'm trying to figure out what to do. Um, but as we were looking back, I was asking him about the very first time he pastored. And my dad had a, uh, a stutter when he was younger. He kind of had a speech impediment, and he's also dyslexic. So going to school, no one ever thought that he would be a minister because public speaking was just not for him. But he found a church. Uh, when he became a Christian, he thought when you gave your life to ministry, you should start preaching the very next Sunday. He didn't know that you were supposed to wait four years and go to school and, and, and get a, you know, an apprenticeship and all this stuff. He thought if God called you to do something, you do something. So he found a church that would allow him to preach. He was the only white guy at an all-African-American church, and it was a church in the middle of nowhere, uh, the boonies of Missouri, and it had a very small congregation. They didn't have a full-time preacher. They didn't have anybody that would come and preach. And so what they would do is they would have college students come from time to time to preach. So my dad said, I want to come and preach. And he got up there, and like my sermon last week was, he was over with in 15 minutes. He didn't know what to do. He, he preached a little bit, and then he was done. And one of the congregants uh, who kind of felt bad for him came up and then talked to, for the rest of the time about what his sermon had meant to him, as my dad just stood there awkwardly uh, not knowing what to do. And so he went to him afterwards. He says, hey, I need to learn how to do this. What, what are the things that I need to know? And he said, two things I want you to remember. Make a big deal about Jesus. And at the end, here at our church, we always finish with heaven. My dad said, why do you always finish with heaven? He says, well, you might not understand this, but our family all come from slaves. Our parents, some of them were slaves. Our grandparents, all of them were slaves. And he says, when they were in that position of life, the only hope they had in the world was the hope of heaven. So no matter what is going on in the world, we need you to end with heaven to remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. 
that's kind of what I've been learning a little bit as I've been studying and going back through Ecclesiastes in preparation for this. One of the things that Ecclesiastes, the book that we're working through, does is it reminds me of what it was like when I was lost. Some of you have been Christians for so long, you forgot what it was like to be lost. Or maybe you grew up in a church environment, and you've always had a good home uh, system. You've had mom and dad, and they raised you in church, and you haven't gone through a lot of the things that other people have had to. But even those of you who maybe have grown up in the church, maybe you rebelled for a while. Maybe you went off and chased money or addiction or whatever it was. And eventually, right, amen, right? And maybe you got to a point in your life where all of a sudden the great weight of emptiness laid upon your shoulders. Do you remember what that was like before you had Jesus? Do you, do you remember? I? Um, there was one time... Many, many years ago, we lived like 34th and Memorial, and I didn't want to go home because I was too messed up, but I remember there was a church parking lot, like there was a church in the neighborhood, and whenever I would get lost in the neighborhood, my dad always told me, because you could see the steeple from anywhere in the neighborhood, he says, if you're ever lost, just look for the steeple and you can find your way home, because I knew how to get to my house from the church, it was only a couple blocks away. And that's something that I've remembered my whole life. Whenever I'm lost, just look for the steeple and I can find my way home. But I remember going to that parking lot, getting out of my car and just laying on the cement and bawling my eyes out. And it was going to be another year and a half before God rescued me. But I was just overcome by the lostness and emptiness of the world and how it had impacted my own life. And sometimes I have to go back to that mental state to remember how good I have it now. Some of you think you have it bad right now. But if we read Ecclesiastes, we remember what bad is like. We remember what lostness is like. And that's one of the goals. If, if we believe that King Solomon wrote this, we don't know for sure, but it's a good suggestion that he's the one who wrote it. And what he does is he goes on this... Um, journey to explore everything. The illustration we use, if you go to a park, uh, like a national park, there's a park ranger, and the park ranger tells you, if you want to be back by sunset, go this trail, and you'll be back in time. If you want to go see the peak of, of the hill or the mountaintop, take this trail. If you want to go where the bears are, take this trail. And how does he know that? Because he has traveled every trail. Some of you have traveled a lot of trails. And you have advice for other people. And you do this when you're a parent and you look at your kids and you tell them, don't do this. And a lot of the reasons you're telling them not to do that is because you did it and it ended terribly, right? You're like, don't go down that path. What we have is somebody who has the resources financially and the power positionally to go down every road imaginable. If you got your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Somebody was ahead of time. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. It's after Psalms and Proverbs, if you're lost on where Ecclesiastes might be, Old Testament. So you can find Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. If you got it, would you say, I got it? 
Okay, see, look, we, we, I know we're Southern Baptists, but we got a little bit of soul in us. Y'all can amen, y'all can talk back. I'll, I'll just return in favor what you give to me, okay? Um, glory, glory. Uh, let's read together. Again, I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. So the first thing that he's going to do is he's looking at the world as though he is not a believer. This is somebody who has no eternal hope. And he says, if you look at the world, you realize that those who have high positions of power usually abuse it. And then there are victims of that power, and there is no real justice. Bad things happen to good people, and bad people oftentimes end up with really good things. And he looks at the world from that angle, and if, I don't know, if, if you're like me, if you focus on the news for too long, if you stay too plugged in to world events, you begin to get a sense of hopelessness. Because there's a war over here, a famine over here, a fire over here, floods over here. And if you look around and you begin to consider the meaningless and purpose of life, you look at what is going on in all the world and go, well, I guess there's no real chance things will actually go good for you. Because no matter how good you are, there could be somebody who's more powerful that is not good that steals everything from you at any moment. That's real encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> it's a real uplifter. In fact, the problem with evil, the fact that there is evil in the world, is one of the main contentions against the idea of whether there is a God or not. Atheists often bring this up in debates. They will point out that, um, look at the children that are starving around the world. If there is a good God, how could such bad things happen? Really what they're saying is they don't believe in a God that gives good things to good people and bad things to bad people, and I don't believe in that God either. I believe in what Romans says, that we are all sinners, that we are all unholy, and by His grace, some of us get eternal salvation. Whether or not our lot here in this life will improve and get great, and we have the, the, the picket fence house, two stories, and the swimming pool, and all the great stuff, that's not guaranteed. Because if it was, remember when we studied the book of Job. The book of Job was the idea of uh, essentially karma. If I'm good, God gives good things to me. Well, that very easily turns into spiritual manipulation. I will obey God not because I love him, but because I love his stuff. That's a terrible relationship, isn't it? Somebody that values another person, not for who they are, but for what they can give them, in our culture is called a gold digger. <laughs> And so God is not like that. That's not the kind of relationship he's looking for. Now, is the problem of evil a real problem when it comes to believing that there is a God? If there is a good God who has the power to stop all things, then why doesn't he do it? Well, the free will is a problem. It's one of the gifts and curses that he gave to mankind. Free will is required in order for us to have a real relationship. If you create a robot, that robot can only love you back if you program it to. It can never choose to love you back. In order for God, because he created us to have a relationship, not to be slaves and robots. In order to do that, 
free will is required. And it's not the Christians that have a problem with bad things going on in the world. It's the atheists. Let me explain just very quickly. This is just a little side note. If there is no God, there is no such thing as good or evil. There is only preference. You might prefer that uh, during World War II that Hitler didn't put a bunch of Jewish people in concentration camps. But it would never be evil if there is no God. Because there is no higher standard to appeal to. Right? So you would have to have a standard higher than humans to appeal to to call something good or evil. In fact, this is the very trick that uh, in the world court after World War II that the Nazis tried to apply. They said, we know you think it's evil, but to us it was okay. Who are you to judge? We have our own cultural preference. And you know what they said? The world court appealed to a higher power. They say it is not up to just us and our cultural preferences. There is a higher power that deems what you did as moral and evil. There is no good or evil without God. So this is the problem that he looks at. And you can see what happens if you remove that one thing. If during the time of slavery, if you remove the hope of heaven, despair takes over. They have nothing. They have nothing. And now you can see why the hope of God is so important. Not just to us, but to everybody. Has to have a reason bigger than them to live. The expression that he uses there, there are the dead that are not yet dead. He's like, there are these walking dead people that he looks around. And then even he hints at this idea that I've heard in our culture. Uh, this is one of the first times in a long time, if not ever, that the population is decreasing. And one of the main justifications you hear from millennials in the, this next generation is they don't want to bring kids into such a chaotic world. And I... I understand part of that. But I look at my kids as the hope of the world. They are the arrows in my bow that I fire at the enemy. They are the sword I swing at despair. By teaching them the gospel and how to be good godly men that are messengers of hope and love and peace, we defeat the hopelessness of the world. The next thing he goes on to, verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Uh, he looks around, he says, look, I worked so hard and I gained all this stuff and I was very successful. And what happens? Now my neighbor envies me, which means he doesn't like you. Isn't that awful? Like, so there's a lot of people that are keeping up with the Joneses and they're just trying to get the stuff that other people have. But then they get more than their friends and their friends start judging them for what they have and they no longer like them. So the cost of you getting that stuff was to lose your friendships. <laughs> it's a lose-lose situation. Like, man, I'm trying to keep up with this friend and I finally get it. And when I get that, I lose this friend because now they're mad. They think I sold out and I, just because I have nice stuff, they think I'm stuck up in a snob. I can't win. And he looks at that and he says, it's all vanity. It's all just smoke in the wind. Some people work hard and climb up the ladder only for their neighbors to hate their success. Then this next part is, um, verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. 
So there's the people that work really hard and they gain everything only for their neighbors not to like them. And then there's the guy who just sits around and does nothing. And he just basically feeds off his own fat all day long. And he's despised as well for being lazy and slothful. He's like, if I work really hard, I lose friends. If I stay at home and just try to watch TV all day, well, then I've just wasted my life. Where's the middle ground? What do I do? How do I function in this world if I don't have an eternal perspective? He's going to begin to give us a little bit of advice from what all he's seen. Verse 6. Better a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. I'm going to read that one more time because it's hard to understand. Better is handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. What is he talking about there? What does he mean? Better, it's better to be content with what you have. Better be content with what you can hold in one hand than spending all your days just reaching out trying to get more, 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 more. In fact, contentment is one of the key factors to having a happy life. Contentment. Not just contentment, but godliness contentment. As I believe it's 1 Timothy says that godly, uh, uh, contentment with godliness is great gain. Did I read that right? Yeah, that's right. 1 Timothy 6.6. Uh, 6. Uh, contentment with godliness is great gain. So if you can be content with what God has given you, somehow you gain more than you would ever gain if you strive with both hands just trying to get material stuff all day long. So that's an easy thing to say, but if I was to ask how many of you are content this morning, don't raise your hand, but think, are you content? Or are you frustrated? Or are you materialistically hungry for something else? gotta have this. I want it. Now, it's good to have a fire that burns within you that drives you to like accomplish certain things. That is not a negative. But the Christian should be able to balance his desire to provide for his family with contentment. How hard is that? How hard is it to balance that desire? I want to provide all the things for my kids that my, fa- my parents couldn't give to me And all of a sudden you've become a workaholic and your kids are going, I just wanted time. I just wanted time. I didn't need the four-wheeler and all this other stuff. I didn't need that. I I needed you. And so being able to find that balance of this godly drive that God gives young men. Do you remember that when you were younger? The like especially when you're a teenager, you can take over the world. I don't see a lot of senior adults at protests. (laughs) You don't see a lot. What you see is a lot of young, angry men and women who are going, we've got to change it. If only we could change this one thing, we would have utopia. The older you get, the more you realize everybody has been promising utopia since the creation of the world, and no human being has ever been able to deliver it. This is why heaven is important. You want utopia? A politician doesn't know the way. You want utopia? An organization doesn't know the way. If you want utopia, it's called the Garden of Eden, and it will be the gift of God to us when he returns. How do I know that? How do I know that? Not only does the scripture promise us, 
but it's where we were born. Humanity was created in the garden to be at peace with God and the rest of mankind, including the earth. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no one, no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling, toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now what is he talking about? What I think he wants to encourage us is stop. Stop for just a minute. Pause your life from time to time and go, why am I working so hard? Why am I working so hard? What is the reason? I get up every day and I eat a quick breakfast and I drive to some place and I either have a boss or I am the boss and I work all day long and I go home and I answer phone calls because after I left, everything fell apart and you got all this stuff and you get home and there's all this stuff at home you got to fix all these conversations. You go, why am I doing this? See, there's very few times in life where we stop and pause. Scripture, one of the intents that is given to us is it teaches us to stop and pause. Doesn't the Bible tell us to be still and know that He is God? That's beautiful because it keeps me from thinking I'm God. And then I, control is an illusion. You think you have control? Control is an illusion. We all think we have it until there's a phone call on a Tuesday at 1 a.m. where a loved one was in a car accident, or you get that terrible diagnosis of cancer. Uh, it's, it's, it's an illusion. I, I don't have control. I, I rode my motorcycle here, and uh, my wife would be angry. I didn't wear a helmet. I always wear a helmet. I didn't wear a helmet today. I'm sorry, <laughs> but there is a chance that no matter how in control of that machine that I am, somebody else could be out of control of theirs and take everything. Right? So what we need to do from time to time is stop. And just ask the question, why am I working so hard? What is it you want from life? What is it you're toiling after? Because if you're toiling after things that do not have an eternal perspective built into them, Solomon say it was vanity. It's chasing after the wind. It's, it's trying to uh, go from point A to point B on a sta stationary bicycle, right? Can you imagine somebody entering Olympic bicycle races and they bring a stationary bike and everybody takes off and they're paddling much faster and they've got better form and they could be the hardest worker in the room, but their bike is stationary. You could be the hardest worker in the room. But does all your toil lead to something with an eternal perspective, or does it die with you? Man, Solomon's bringing it hard this morning. Goodness. But here's some hope. Here's what he gives us. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Oftentimes when I do a wedding, this is one of the verses that get read at a wedding. 
Um, it's better to struggle with somebody else than to struggle by yourself. And the church has issues with this. We are friendly, but we have a very hard time making friendship. Right? We, we're friendly with each other, but one of the things that God calls us to is much deeper relationship than acquaintances. Some of you have been going to the same church together for years and you hardly know each other. And I get it, it's hard. We're, we're busy, we have busy lives. We, we've got all this stuff going on, but one of the things that we need to make time for is deep relationships. You know how hard it is to make friends as an adult? That's so hard, right? I, I've had the same best friend since kindergarten. It's just because it's just hard to make good, deep friendships. Hey, adults get much more judgmental. I don't know why that is. Kids get over stuff really easily. Like, my kid could get hurt by the kid down the street and come home and like, I'm never playing with him again. And then next week they're over there at their house, you know. I'm like, what about this? Oh, I don't care. I don't care anymore, right? But adults, for whatever reason, we will hold on to any imperfection and use that to despise or put down the other person. And I think it's because adults have spent more time in the world and feel the desperation that Solomon has been talking about. And one of the things we do to make ourselves feel better in a lost and chaotic world is to put other people down because we say, at least we're not like them. The problem is, as you do that, you end up as the person that's alone. You end up pushing away other people. Because, yes, they might not understand you at your deepest core. Okay, I got news for you. You don't understand them at their deepest core either. But part of being a Christian is that you are called to love these people here in this room as brothers and sisters. Turn to First Peter chapter 4 towards the end of your Bible. Before 1 John, before 2 Peter, after Hebrews. Okay. Uh, fourth chapter. First Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be at verse 7. While the rest of you look, I'm going to take a drink. First Peter 4, verse 7, Paul writing, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's a couple of key things that I want to point out here. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, not fake love, not superficial worldly love, not the love you have for your coworker, but real sincere love. Now, this is only, like, sincere love only gets tested, like, 
you think you love somebody or you think somebody loves you, but the moment there is conflict is when you begin to find out whether or not there's sincere love or not. And we see this, there is uh, a division in our culture between left and right. And, and that cavern is getting great in the amount of division. And all of it stems from, I can't love you if you think this way. And everybody's becoming single-issue voters, where we have an issue, and you go, if you're not on my team on this issue, I hate you, you're the enemy. And my fear is, though that is outside the church and our culture, that it'll eventually, like so many things in the culture, permeate through these walls and become a part of church culture. And some of us have seen it as a part of church culture in the past. Nobody has wounded me more than my Christian friends. I was talking with somebody the other day. I said, I've always, in many aspects, felt much more comfortable around lost people because they don't wear a mask because they have nothing to hide. But Christians oftentimes have this mask syndrome where as soon as they find out you're a pastor, you're something else, you know, like, um, I, I hesitate when I go out with uh, some friends and they introduce me to somebody that's new. I don't want them to tell them what I do for a living. If anything, I just say, just say I teach theology, because then they won't want to talk to me at all, right? And that's, I'm just kind of like, let me just stay over in the corner. But I'll be around a group of people, and they say, oh, this is Caleb. He's a pastor. And all of a sudden, they go, I'm sorry I said those words. I'm sorry. Um, and they change how they act around me. And, but what I desire is for people to be who they are, because it frees me up to be who I am. And if you fake it, then there's a temptation for me to fake it, and I don't have time to fake it anymore. I want to be as real and authentic of a human being as I can, and guess what? I'm messy. I'm growing. I'm a human becoming, not just a human being. I'm trying to learn what it means to follow God every day. I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fall. But if this is a place where we can be authentically ourselves, what a beautiful thing that is. But it's terrifying because we know and we have learned over time that people aren't safe. You've learned that over time. You've been wounded. You've been hurt. You've been all sorts of things. So what do we do? In verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We have forgotten the art of hospitality. When was the last time you had somebody over to your house? Especially somebody from, like, this congregation. Because, look, I get it. It is hard to make friends on a Sunday morning. And some of you have come for a long time, and you've sat in the same spot for a long time. And the only people you know are the people right in front of you and the people right behind you. And one of the goals of a pastor is to help build deeper and better connections, and it's hard. And some of you, you come here, and you feel lonely. And I'm sorry, I don't want that. I don't want that. I want you to come here and feel like you are with family. Like, I get excited to come here because this is where my friend circle is. You are my friends. You're my people. If things got bad, you're the ones I call. If, if somebody got sick in my family, some of you are the ones that I would call. Do you have those people in your life? 
Or have you been working so hard you found yourself lonely again? Have you shown up? You're like, oh, I've been going to church, but, you know, we greet each other, but I, I've never quite fit in. I feel lonely here. I get that, and I'm sympathetic. And I, I want to make it better. Um, but I can only invite so many of you over to my house every week. <laughs> I can't clean my house that often, right? I'm going to be authentic, but not when it comes to my house. It's going to look cleaner than it normally is. I have children, right? So just quick, throw everything in the closet. Oh, my house always looks like this, right? But my hope and my prayer is, is that some of you will begin to take initiative to love your neighbor as yourself. That you would look across and you go, you know what, they're, they're similar age as us. They, they've got kids like we've got kids. Why don't I invite them out to lunch? Why don't I invite them over for dinner? Why don't I have, you know, just come over and have a game night? I can't wait till my kids are old enough to actually play a game with me without them cheating and crying every time I win, right? Right? We're going to play shoots and ladders, and five minutes in, everything's on the floor, and half of them are crying, right? It's like, I'm not going to let them win. i got to teach them who's the boss in the house, right? I'm teaching them character. Ecclesiastes reminds us of what it's like to be lost. It reminds us what it's like to be alone. It reminds us of what life is like without Christ. But just like the gentleman at the church told my dad in his very first sermon, he said, I always want you to end with heaven so that we own, uh, so we have hope. Well, we try to end every sermon with Jesus Christ so that you have hope. Because without Jesus Christ, if he is not raised from the dead, then everything we're doing here is pointless, and this is the worst country club ever. But God has transformed so many of your lives. He has taken you from lost to found, blind to be able to see, deaf to be able to hear, he has given you new life. We need to tell other people. We need to invite people into the freedom that we have. The rest of the world is living exactly like he is describing it. That's why chaos is king. That's why chaos reigns on our TVs and our cultures, our social media. Chaos reigns because they live in a world without eternal hope. If you have eternal hope, your job to role model and pedal your bike like you're going somewhere, not just sitting still. The most important things in my life when I die I can take with me because it is the people that God has given me to share the gospel with. You and me, family together forever. So you better start liking me now. <laughs> Imagine me for an eternity. Ugh. Don't worry, I'll have my own room. You can disappear sometimes. Let's go, let's go. Um, we take communion here every week because it reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ. Communion is for Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, if you have not had that moment where you have confessed your sins and repented to God and said, Jesus Christ, come into my life, then I want you to take that time and do it today. If you ask Christ into your life, Scripture says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord you will be saved. I, I'm always available to, to talk to you about how you can have a personal relationship with God. In fact, most of the people in here would love to tell you how you can have a relationship with God. You can just scoot over and say, hey, I've never asked Christ into my life. Would you pray with me right now? And if you're afraid and you've been in church for a long time and you're afraid to do that, don't be. It's what you were designed for. It's what you were designed for.
If you're not a believer, but you're still working through all of this, it's okay not to take communion. There's no peer pressure here to do this, okay? Um, the bread represents his body broken for us. The juice represents his blood spilled out for us. I'm going to pray. We'll have a time of reflection. After the song is over, you can stand up. Just take communion together. You can come down either aisle. Take it back to your seat. Pray with those around you. You don't have to wait on me.